I beg you to try it, Patricio. Let me get this straight, Carla. You disagree on the weapon, you disagree on the number of blows. Listen to me, Patricio. You dare once in your life. Hey, people. Trish Wood here. Like every week, I've spent every day this week thinking about what's going to go in the show and how we're going to talk about the situation we find ourselves in. Every show forever is not going to be about where we sit with COVID, but we're in it. And I think as a journalist and podcast host, especially somebody with a bit of a science background, it would be nearly irresponsible for me to not talk about it. But also, I just, I can't help myself. I feel like we're living through history and that we have to talk about what's happening in real time. So that's what we're going to do more of today. I've got a really good guest who I'll tell you about in a minute, but I want to just start by saying that um, I did a tweet this week. It's my first really big viral tweet. It went about 5,000 likes and a couple thousand retweets. It happened very quickly. And what's interesting about it is what I said and the reaction to what I said, because it mirrors very much what I hear from you people in your emails and through the Patreon account and other places that you contact me through, there is a theme emerging. And the theme that's emerging is that we are becoming more and more mentally ill. It's maybe the only way I can really say it. You know, we're anxious and upset and depressed, and that's not ending anytime soon. And I believe it's a direct response to the way we're being governed right now and also to the public health messaging, which smart people universally say has been an absolute disaster. It's just, aside from what they're actually doing, what the actual policies are, the messaging has been a disaster in many ways and for many reasons, but not the least of which is that what they're doing is bad for our mental health. And so Here's what the tweet said. It said, and continues to say, if you go to my timeline, you should be looking at my Twitter anyway, because I post some show material on here. It says, this is me speaking, I'm told by people who study propaganda that the on-off switch and goalpost moving is a powerful tool for gaining compliance. People become exhausted and just give up. It also drives depression and suicide as we become hopeless and powerless with no agency over our lives. I feel that is so true for many, many of us, and I'm hearing about it from many of you. So I'm going to try to give you a bit of a remedy today in in ways to, a way to deal with this that might cause a bit of a spiritual shift, right? Let me just say, first of all, that I, I did use the word suicide, and I've had messages like that from people. I respond to them right away, and um, I always advise people if they are feeling really down, as your psychiatrist would say, go to the nearest emergency room, because that's not what I do here. And I know some people are really, really struggling, so I feel like I have to say that. But but for those of you who are just who are down and feeling anxious and hopeless, one of the things you can do is think about how, when this thing is over, whatever that looks like, uh, we can get to a place 
in each country where my voice is heard, which is UK, Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand. I know we have fans in Italy and Europe as well. People who have really struggled against draconian lockdowns and vaccine mandates and other policies that don't make sense and that seem quite harmful, messaging that tries to separate certain groups out as the cause of the trouble, that's all so bad for us. So I would say to you people, looking to the future, we have to start thinking about how we would get to forgiveness. There's no other way, right? I mean, in the program I'm in for alcoholism, they tell us that resentment and anger towards other people is the poison we drink ourselves. And that the only way to alleviate that is to learn to forgive. It doesn't mean forget or let them keep doing it to you or not take action. It just means to have the spiritual shift that you're able to exhale and forgive them and not be raging around because that is not good for us mentally or physically. It's going to be hard to do because a lot of us are sustained by our righteous anger, right? uh, myself included, but I also get exhausted by that. And there are days when I, not very often and not certainly not often enough, where I turn off my social media and all media generally and just go for a walk in nature. That for me, that's that's my jam, as the kids say, is nature, preferably by a lake when there's a storm, love that too. But we have to start looking at ways to detoxify our view of each other and the world we live in. There's no other way because if we don't do that, and let's just say that the world comes to its senses and we go back to a semblance of normalcy, the damage from being this angry for this long without a release valve could go on forever. Like you actually suffer, suffer physiological problems and, you know, our brain chemistry changes. You cannot live on cortisol. Most of us are in fight or flight all day long. It's like, oh my God, Alberta is now locking down more. And, and you know, in, in Ontario, Canada, where I live, one of the regions is doing contact tracing in people's private homes of groups of, I think it's more than two. I, I saw that and I could feel my blood pressure was just, and why, why, why? Because you feel helpless. It's so dumb and so not science and so absurd, but there's nothing you can do about it. And those poor people out there in Durham are going to, I think they're facing a $5,000 fine if they don't contact Trace in their own homes. Okay? So let's get back to forgiveness. See, it's happening to me. You can hear my voice. So we have to find a way to get to a place where when the time comes, we can forgive our brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens, you know, our crazy parents, our, you know, all the people who have been a problem for us because life will go on. So today, I'm going to try to help you with that. We got a great guest. First of all, let me announce her. Her name is Karen Hunt. And I think the best way to describe her, at least for me, is she's she's a, a fantastic writer and a big, big thinker. And she feels to me, if Hunter Thompson were still alive, and not drug-addled, and a woman, 
writing about the time in which we live now, he might be Karen Hunt. That's how I feel about her her writing. It's really interesting. She's a very interesting person. She um, She's a martial artist. She's traveled the world and lived in lots of uh, different circumstances in exotic countries. She started reading programs for disadvantaged kids and the like. She's a very smart person, but but she's she writes things where I go, wow, that's exactly what I was thinking. And I don't think anybody was thinking that but me, but here she is, Karen, thinking it. I'll give you an example. She says, while we ordinary citizens endure the storms of mutating virus, climate change, food shortages, evictions from homes, floods of illegal immigrants, a revival of terrorism, crime waves, the threat of civil war, even another world war. The first space hotel is set to open in 2027. <laughs> the point of that is like, the elites have their concerns. You know, Jeff Bezos and Elon, they're all going to outer space and we're left down here with these messes to clean up and no one to help us and at each other's throats because of COVID. So, so that's Karen Hunt. Uh, and we're going to be hearing an interview I did with her a little bit later on. So the story about forgiveness involves a young girl, young teenager named Rena Virk, who was murdered in um, just outside of Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. She was 14 years old when it happened in November of 1997. Seven teenagers, six girls, which was really shocking, and a boy beat her very, very badly. They tortured her. They tortured Rena Virg. And um, and then two of the seven dragged her to the water under a bridge and finished her off and left her there. It was an absolutely horrific, horrific story. And it shocked the country and it shocked the world. But let me tell you something. I will finish the story for you at the end of the show. Her mother uh, did a, a, a very spiritual thing, an act of forgiveness toward one of the children who murdered her own daughter. And we can learn a lot from her today, that when something is unthinkably grim, that we can never get there, we can never get to forgiveness, she lights the way Mrs. Burke does. So I'm going to unfold that for you at the end of the show. So let's talk about what's been happening in the world of COVID this week. Uh, the unvaccinated continue to, uh, you know, to be the scapegoats of this thing. It's really shocking. And, um, while we talk about that and think about how the unvaccinated people are being portrayed, I stumbled across yet another case where they'd said that a young woman in the UK and her mother died of COVID. They were unvaccinated. It's one of those regret stories, right? So there's there's two stories right now that are driving the narrative in the media. One of them is the unvaccinated person dies of COVID and dies regretting that they didn't get the vaccine and they're saying, please, making an appeal to the public, get the vaccine. That's one story that's allowed. And the other one is the busy ICU unit tour with the usual, I call them terror doctors, who will have reporters in and say, look how busy our ICU is with COVID patients, right? And and and, and sometimes they say, in fact, the latest one, they did say, 
there were no, I can't remember the language they used, but they were suggesting that there were no overt comorbidities. But the word obesity was never used. And the patient's histories are never given. And there doesn't ever seem to be a way to check what is being said about the patients either. So I don't know if the reporters are actually given the names of the patients and allowed to review the charts or not. I suspect that's a real violation. So those are the other stories we get. ICUs are busy. Younger people are coming in and being uh, admitted to ICUs with COVID. That's, those are the two stories that we're allowed to read about, about COVID these days. And um, what's interesting about the, on the obesity side of it is this, that I read a statistic that said that 61% of Americans, which I believe is 328 million people, so 61% of 328 million, gained weight during the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, lockdown, sitting at home with your Netflix and your Uber Eats, gym is closed, and depression. I am a depression eater. I'm a cozy eater. You know, for me, when I'm not well mentally, not as sharp as I should be, not emotionally, spiritually on the beam, I can retreat into binge watching and food eating, bad food eating for a weekend, right? And and I think this happened to a lot of people over the um, last year and a half. And public health, those were public health rules. They clearly didn't factor that in. They didn't tell people to be careful. They didn't offer any solutions, really, for people to not get fat. And lest they ever say to what I'm about to say, we didn't know that, then that's an absolute lie. Because I was seeing early on in the pandemic, lots of doctors on TV saying that the the thing that was binding some of their bad outcomes together was the fact that the patients were obese and they also were suggesting a mechanism. These cytokine storms and the fact that uh, obesity and diabetes are in part diseases of inflammation. So that was it makes perfect sense. This is not a big surprise and yet still no one's talking about it. So in these this vaccination story where these two women died because they didn't get vaccinated... I looked at the pictures. One of them, you can't tell. The other one, she was obese. That word is never used in the story. And my question for the public health people who are using that story to say, get vaccinated, is this. Did those women, if in fact both of them were obese, but at least the the obese daughter, did her doctor say, you're obese, you have a very high possibility of a bad outcome if you get COVID, maybe you should rethink your vaccine resistance? Because that message is not coming out from anybody anywhere. Right? I, I don't hear, you know, when Joe Biden's saying, I'm losing my patience with you, and, and you know, e- e- people are yammering for vaccine mandates, knowing people are vaccine hesitant, especially in the African-American community. They have reason to be. The Tuskegee experiments might suggest that. But, but also obesity is a big problem in the African-American community. So why isn't public health saying, look, you you know, if you are obese, you run a greater chance of a bad outcome and you should really think about getting a vaccine. That message is not being said. And yet people, obese people are dying because they're not vaccinated. According to the narrative, the only piece of information we can take from that story is they were not smart for not being vaccinated. That's ridiculous. That's not public health messaging. That's punitive. That's trying to control people. 
So back to my 328 million. So 61% of 328 million is roughly 200 and something million. It's a lot of people. If 30 pounds is the average, which is what we're being told of weight gain. So if those, let's say those 200 million people gain 30 pounds, let's say half of them gain the 30 pounds. That's 100 million people now who have been driven by the public health guidelines into a state of health that makes it more likely they will die of COVID. That's what public health rules have done. And nobody's talking about it. So here are the numbers, 328 million, 61% gained weight, 30 pounds is the average weight. If you take half of that and say that half of those people were driven to obesity by the weight gain of 30 pounds, that's 100 million people, give or take. So ask yourself why nobody's talking about that. It's That's what Joe Biden should have been talking about instead of threatening people. So the other story is this hospitals are overrun because people aren't vaccinated. Lots of doctors, at least where I am in Toronto, are saying to the media, we don't even want to treat these unvaccinated people. Okay, so a story comes out today in the Toronto Star. Very good reporting, I must say. And it is reporting that buttresses what our old friend Julius Ruchel said when he was on our show. And what the story says is hospitals have been the province's second deadliest setting for COVID-19 outbreaks. So while they're doing the reportorial tours of the ICU with the doctor blaming community spread for those people being in there, the second most infectious place, dangerous place for people to be in relation to COVID after long-term care, are hospitals who haven't been able to get their infection control in line with what needs to happen for people to not become infected with COVID when they come to the hospital. So these are not people who came into hospital with COVID. These are people who came into the hospital for other things and got COVID. Second deadliest setting. So and there, here's, the, here's a quote. There's no other way to depict this other than a completely unmitigated tragedy, said Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. He's one of the people who appears frequently on television, assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. They need to better control the spread of respiratory diseases now and in the future. Let me just add to that, and please bear in mind while I'm I'm talking about these things, how we have been scolded for driving up the infection rate in hospitals with community spread through our irresponsible behavior. And they use the hospital numbers to decide what policy is going to be. That's, you know, governors in, in America, in England, they do the same, they do the same here in Canada. They say, oh, there are, you know, a hundred people in intensive care with COVID or, or hospitalized with COVID. So recently, like September 13th, a new study was released that suggested that almost half of those hospitalized with COVID-19 have mild or asymptomatic cases 
So while we're getting these, this is an American review of medical charts, massively, massively credible review. While we're getting these terrifying numbers that are driving lockdowns and vaccine mandates and our hospital systems are going to collapse, these doctors who did the study reviewed the charts and the people, half of them weren't that sick. They had mild or asymptomatic cases. So, and yet they're saying, oh, they're hospitalized with COVID. See the dishonesty there? So some of the people in hospital were people who were there for other things and tested positive. Many COVID patients in the hospital with mild symptoms who've been admitted for further observation on account of their comorbidities or because they reported feeling short of breath. Another portion of the patients in this tally rate are in the hospital for something unrelated to COVID and discovered that they were infected only because they were tested upon admission. So this is what's been driving policy. You know, as this thing goes on, more and more of the infrastructure around which COVID policy has been built is starting to collapse. You would think if they were going to use these numbers to drive policy, as the Ontario Hospital Association has been doing for months, oh, we've got all these people in, we're, it's full, we're going to collapse, that they would review the charts to make sure that people who were in the hospital with a positive COVID test were actually needed to be in the hospital for COVID, that they weren't there for something else. This completely skews our view, the media's view, the government's view of what's happening with the pandemic by 50% according to this study. So, wow, I, I I was absolutely gobsmacked. This should be a headline news in every paper in the world. It's not. It did get, it got a bit of play, but not as much as it should have because it's a huge shift. Here is one doctor saying, some COVID patients are in for soft hospitalizations where they need only minimal treatment and leave relatively quickly. Others may be on the antiviral drug remdesivir, remdesivir for five days or with a tube down their throat. One of the values of the study, he said, is that it helps the public understand this distinction and the fact that not all COVID hospitalizations are the same. The study demonstrates that hospitalization rates for COVID, as cited by journalists and policymakers, can be misleading if not considered carefully. COVID hospitalization tallies can't be taken as a simple measure of the prevalence of severe or even moderate disease because they might inflate the true numbers by a factor of two, which means double. I know two sounds small. It means double in this parlance. So you know what? Though it, Final line, those patients who are there with rather than from COVID don't belong in the metric. That's the last line in the story. And here we are. How far along are we with these rates driving policy in UK, here in Canada and the States, and probably Australia and New Zealand too? How long? And this comes out in a study published a few days ago. But why weren't journalists asking this question? See, journalists say, why are you picking on us? 
because this is the kind of work that journalists should be doing. They should be demanding to know more detail about who is listed as being in hospital with COVID and what does that mean? Because it drives policy. And the policies are hurting people. So this can't just be blown off. This should be a nuclear bomb dropping on the discussions around COVID. And it's not, but we, we're we talking about it. The other interesting statistic I saw this week is that 90% of kids in some cohort in the UK have immunity, either through jab or natural immunity. So that's a, that's like way beyond herd immunity, I think. They're, they're, so they're doing really well. And I, I wonder why we're not getting stats on herd immunity elsewhere and in other cohorts. Because if you think about how COVID, both asymptomatically and symptomatically, has gone through the populations and how many people are vaccinated, we must be there by now. And if things like hospitalizations are suggesting that we're not at herd immunity, maybe we should be looking at what those numbers are actually saying. Because I would be flabbergasted based on how high in Canada, especially the vaccination rates are here with herd immunity, if you count that, or with natural immunity, if you count that, that we're not, I'm sure we are at herd immunity or pretty close. So if that's the case, why are we panicking again? Why all the hair on fire rhetoric? I mean, I, there is something going on in Alberta, but I don't trust the numbers coming out of the I'm going to do a review and talk about it next week. But um, yeah, I just don't feel we're getting good context and analysis about what is going on. This is the part of the podcast where I talk to you about our fundraising vehicles, which are Patreon and PayPal. You can reach both of them easily through trishwoodpodcast.com, which is my website for the show. Uh, Patreon is good because it offers a monthly amount that we can rely on. It's a, it's a monthly commitment that we can rely on. So we're not having to do constant, constant fundraising once we reach our goal, which we're not close to the goal yet. Thank you very much for everybody who's taking part, but we've got to do another drive to get us up to the point where we're closer to being self-sustaining here, trying really hard. Uh, and pay, But PayPal also gives you the option of doing a monthly donation to us. So if you don't want to do Patreon, which can be sort of complicated, you can do a PayPal and they will allow you to do the monthly donation as well. So that really helps us. And I'm always so grateful to see it coming in. It's it's wonderful. And the good part of it is that I get lovely notes from people too. And that really lifts my spirits. Um, I want to talk to you about our book giveaway. So we, we have a book draw, which I announced last week. And the book is A State of Fear by Laura Dodsworth, who was a guest on our show. She blew the lid off of the PSYOP that is COVID public health policy messaging. They used fear and terror to get compliance. It's going to be really hard for them to unring the bell. They've made people, they've crippled people. People are crippled emotionally and mentally as a result of the messaging they used. It was just another disaster, 
around the decisions that are being made. So she's the one who really brought that to the fore in this book. She did some very solid investigative journalism about what they call the nudge unit. We have one here too. Behavioral science, it's called. People who are paid by the government so that the government knows how best to manipulate you. And um, she's done this wonderful book, A State of Fear. So the plan was that we were going to pull two names out from our subscriber lists, which we've done. And I was going to announce them on the show. And then I realized that maybe people don't want their names announced on the show. We didn't ask that question. I know some people are very worried about being picked on or, you know, hassled or something because they're not towing the COVID party line. So here's what we're going to do instead. The names have been randomly chosen for these two books. We will email you and then you can email us back with your mailing address and tell us if we can announce your names on next week's podcast. So why don't we do it that way? That way everybody's all protected and it's great. Okay, so I have another book I'm going to do too for next week and that is by the great Jeffrey Tucker who has been on our show twice. We love him. He's one of our most popular, popular guests. And the book is called Liberty or Lockdown. So I also have two of those. So for those of you listening to the podcast who haven't joined either PayPal or Patreon, if you want a chance to win one of these wonderful books from one of our guests, um, go sign up, please. And we'll put you on the list for the draw. And we'll do the same next week. We'll, once we've pulled, we'll email you and you can let us know your mailing address and if we can use your name. And then the third book we're going to do is my book called What Was Asked of Us. And it was a, a book I did that was published in 2007, I believe, about the Iraq war that did really well. The San Francisco Chronicle said it's the only book about the Iraq war that matters. So it did well critically. Not so well sales. Well, I think it was too early. It was too dark. And as you can imagine, given that I wrote it, but, but um, I think it was maybe a bit too early for people to actually absorb what was being said in the book about the Iraq war, but the critics loved it. So that's a wonderful thing for me. I really enjoyed that people got it. People writing about books got it. So, so that's going to be our next giveaway after next week. So we've got Jeffrey Tucker next week and the following week, it's going to be my book called What Was Asked of Us, An Oral History of the Iraq War by the Soldiers Who Fought It. That is the opening theme song for Law and Order, as if you didn't know that. Probably the most famous opening theme song of any show maybe in the history of television. Very comforting for me. It's one of the programs that I use as a bit of a security blanket. And when I was traveling a lot in the States for work, when I went into a new hotel, hotel room, I would immediately look for the channel that was nonstop law and order. There are some, or there were some back in those days. And SUV was my favorite one. And once that TV was on, it just stayed on the whole time I was there, unless I was sleeping. Sometimes I left it on when I was sleeping too. But the point of what I'm saying is that law and order had a very soothing effect 
on me. I think it was because Dick Wolf crafts, he's the, the producer, he crafts these worlds where we come to know the characters well, we like most of them, the conflict is resolved by the end of the program. We can we just feel things are going to unfold in a way we for, are familiar with and nothing terrible is going to happen. And it's comforting. And I, I really liked Olivia Benson as a female archetype. I thought she was terrific. So I stopped, I stopped watching that because it got really woke about five years ago. Absolutely and completely and totally un- watchable, frequently taking wrong or stupid stands on cultural issues. So I just, I couldn't do it. And I've never gone back. They lost me. But then I discovered, and this is what I've been watching lately, as my comfort show. We all need a comfort show. I've been watching Chicago Med. I mentioned it last week. And someone watched it on advisement of me talking about it and said they really liked it. So I decided that it would be fun to hear from you all about what your comfort show is, and we can talk about them from time to time. So email me at info at trishwoodpodcast.com with the show, not your favorite show, but the one you watch that makes you feel comfortable. Maybe you've seen certain episodes multiple times. You can turn it on anywhere you are in the world and feel like you're at home. If you have a show like that, uh, tell me which one it is and we can talk about them and maybe other people will discover them too. I'm not necessarily endorsing that we go back to watching screens. I think we need to get out more, get out and get more exercise right now. But, but I do want to know what shows you watch that are comforting for you. So let me know and we will talk about them. So moving along, I want to get to our interview with Karen Hunt. She writes on Substack, and her site is called Break Free with Karen Hunt. And here is my interview with her. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Trish? I'm good. So locate yourself for us. Where are you today? I am in bright and sunny Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. And it's hot, I guess, right? very, very, very hot, but that's normal here. And I'm quite used to it. So it doesn't really bother me that much. So I, I remember when I spent time there, it was actually in the summer, which is probably not that bright, but but I, I remember there was just this kind of, how do I get between air-conditioned room <laughs> to air-conditioned, you know, you kind of run across the parking lot. I never could get used to that wall of heat when you were yeah. leaving. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles and lived in some pretty hot places in the world. I'm kind of used to it, but it's true. And uh, once you, you know, you when you when you go outside, it's kind of like you feel like you are on some kind of alien planet, like you just absolutely cannot exist there. So you end up, you know, running to these air conditioned places, which I don't, I don't really like air conditioning very much. But um, you know, I put up with it when I have to. I can even stand not having the air conditioning where I live, actually, most of the time. Can you? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I can't live without it. I, I've got uh, a window air conditioner in every room in the apartment. <laughs> it's really, it's really decadent, but I can't live without it. And neither can the dog. 
Um, so tell me a bit about yourself. I kind of glibly said in the intro, which you didn't hear, that your writing kind of reminded me of Hunter Thompson, were he alive today and not a drug addict and female, right? <laughs> That's a big, well, you've got an imagination. <laughs> well, I, I mean it as the highest you compliment know, too. But, or, or you know how to connect the dots. <laughs> but, but, but you do sort of, you, you have a real gift for embracing complicated ideas uh, while looking at them through a really acute lens of observation. It was quite, it's quite, you said some things in, in some of the pieces you've written for Substack, which I will uh, highly, highly recommend our listeners seek out when, when we're done, that were things that I thought nobody thought but me. Right. So of course I think you're brilliant, but, but, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're weird things. So can, I just think congratulations on it. You're just Thank a, you. you're a fresh voice and, um, we're really glad to have you. So I, I guess where I want to start, cause it's the most recent thing is the idea that Joe Biden is losing patience with us. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think that the idea that, we could all actually be worried about something like that is pretty scary in itself. You know, I mean that the president of the United States is losing patience with us. I mean, what does that actually mean? You know, on a, on a deeper level, it's quite, quite terrifying, really. It, well, it was, and it was strange. I, I kind of felt like, did, did he actually really say that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's very, um, you know, when I, when I heard, actually, I'm not, I'm really not surprised by anything anymore. And I think that's one of the things that I wrote in one of my recent pieces, um, Utopian Madness, where we we're always feeling like, you know, we're, we're in this constant state of stress and we're always feeling like we're playing catch up in this game. You know, we're never like, and, and so we're constantly saying, I can't believe that just happened. I can't believe that just happened. And it sounds sort of like, um, you know, when, if, if someone is in an abusive relationship where they begin to believe that they actually, you know, like, do I deserve this or, you know, and they're constantly saying, well, it'll be better next time. It'll be better next time. And it never is better next time. But the more that you keep saying, I can't believe this is happening, the more you actually desensitize yourself to what is actually happening and the more that you actually start accepting it as the norm, That is, That is so smart because I am I, I say I can't believe that this is happening or that that just happened like 10, 10 times a day now. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's escalating, definitely escalating. I mean, we, we had a period of calm. And I talk about in this piece also, um, menticide where, you know, you, it's this, it's this thing that people in power do where they, you know, they, they, they give you these waves of terror that overcome you and then a period of calm. So I saw it, you know, this summer, we, of course, we're going to have this relative calm. We're going to be patted on the head. Oh, you did, you know, pretty good. We're going to open things up a little bit for you. And so we had a reprieve. And then uh, now, of course, we are getting another wave of, uh, and, and each wave escalates and becomes bigger and bigger. And we are fed this um, constant, you know, conflicting information. So as we're trying to figure out logically, the last piece of information we had, we're presented with something new. And so we can never actually 
you know, sort things out. So, so they actually want, I, I believe that, you know, logic and rational, rational thinking is just gone out of the window. I mean, I see it in people that I know that are logical, intelligent people. It's no longer a, a rational thought, but it's just responding emotionally to things that are happening. Yeah. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I said in the intro today, which obviously you didn't hear, but um, that I learned from people who study propaganda that the goalpost moving and contradictory information is a tactic that they use and that the results of that tactic for us um, it, you know, is depression and compliance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm hearing from people... I get a lot of emails and a lot of DMs from people who are, are they say, wow, I, I'm so glad to find the podcast because they don't feel alone. But, but they also say, I'm, they're starting to say, I'm done. I, I, mm-hmm. they feel like they've kind of been in the resistance and they can't do it anymore. They're so worn down. And here, here's what I suspect. I suspect that the COVID heretics, and I include myself in that, and I, I only mean people who actually question science mm-hmm. from on all sides, I do fairly, mm-hmm. right? That the COVID heretics have been fighting so long and feeling to no avail that they're prepared to sort of throw in the towel just in hopes that they'll get their central nervous system back. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think that... Um, and, and this is also another thing that we've been taught to, a way that we've been taught to be. It's like we want immediate results too. So, you know, and, I, and I've been saying this to people, the people who have contacted me who feel so discouraged, you know, will this end? You know, will we, will we win this fight? And I'm like, well, actually, maybe not. You know, maybe in this, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, we're not going to win this fight. You know, my thing is, you know, and I'm not an expert. I'm not, I'm sure you have many experts. I'm not an expert. I'm an ordinary human being. And what I'm telling people is you go back to, to common sense, you know, use your common sense to, to, to see what's going on because you're receiving so many conflicting ideas and just use your common sense. And like the way that I was raised, um, I don't know, I, I, I was raised in a very conservative Christian family where, um, you know, my father well, okay, I'll tell you this little story. When I was like 10 years old, my father, who was a successful businessman, brought us all into the his library and said, you know, God has spoken to me. <laughs> I'm going to become a writer and I'm going to stop being a businessman. And we all got on a plane and started traveling the world. This was in 1966. And that was so he could gain some inspiration for his books. Now, everybody thought that he was crazy. He went completely against the tide. Everybody thought he was crazy to do that, but he believed he was, you know, following God's will and and that's what we did. And we, and I had many, many experiences that greatly influenced my writing. But one of the things that I learned, I did not agree, you know, I grew up and I rebelled against that very ultra conservative upbringing that I had. And there were things that I still don't agree with today. But one of the things that I, that, that I really learned was if you, you know, if you believe something, you stand by what you believe. You know, you might not win that battle in that moment, but maybe down the road, a hundred years from now, whatever, 
somebody's going to be telling stories of those battles because they inspired them to do something, you know? So, so I think that, um, you know, people need inspiration. They need encouragement. They need, you know, to get outside of this box of, of, of this depression, to, you know, and I think the thing is that there's no visible way that we're, we can, you know, fight. So it's very, very hard on people to just hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. And then what? You know, despite, yeah, however much you hold the line, nothing changes, you know, so it's, it is difficult. That's a really interesting uh, analysis of where we are because like I I had a call last weekend from someone I know quite well, who's been a beacon of logic throughout this whole thing. You know, we met in the park one day and sat at the picnic table and hashed it through. And he called me the other day and he said, should I get the vaccine? And I said, you know, that's, and he's a young guy in really good shape, you know? And I said, you know what you do? What, first of all, I don't give medical advice. Um, but, but, but it wasn't, he wasn't even asking for medical advice. So we went through all the stuff. What was his risk benefit, you know, ratio. And if you roll in, there's good early treatment and, and, you know, versus the mandates up here that will make life for the unvaccinated Canadians, mm. uh, a living hell in about three days, right? So, so, and he, you know, he was thinking about doing something that four months ago he would never have done and not for reasons of health. This was right. not a health issue. This was a, you know, I'm not sure I can go on this way. I mean, I think he was questioning a little bit about health, although his risk hasn't changed, but it was, it's more, it felt more like he was maybe succumbing to the messaging. And I hear that more and more from people they're just worn out and and it's like from i i have a little bit of a defiant disorder you know so so when biden who's not my president says you know my patience is wearing thin or whatever he said that just makes me dig in more right absolutely (laughs) you know because it's so dysfunctional and like who are you but and and people up here are doing this this you know sort of the same thing but but I am seeing people fall a bit to the wayside now and I think it's just this grind 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 of propaganda and and nonsense I, I think that that's true. And I think that that's what we will see now. It's not going to, you know, the people who were all gung ho for the vaccine, they've taken it. So what we're going to see now are the people who are succumbing and that will cause even more, you know, depression and, and all of these kinds of things because they will feel like they gave into something not, and it's not for logical reasons. I mean, there is no logic involved in any of this. I mean, you, you just need to look at a couple of simple things. You know, today, what was in the news? 10,000 people amassed at the border, uh, you know, to come across, you know, all these people coming across. There are no mandates, you know, for, for that. And yet the citizens of the country, you know, we watch the Met Gala, people there, you know, frolicking maskless and all the servants have masks on. Oh. You know, if, if there was, I, I watched one video of Stephen Colbert dancing. He's maskless. Every every single person around him, floating around him, has a mask on. You know, if, if this were really such a health hazard, these would be the first people who would be protecting themselves, right? Absolutely. And and just I, I want to dig in with where you're going, but I just want to put a, a pin in what you just said about the border. I mean, people are. I actually I pulled that article out for for today's show just to make sure 
that yeah. what I was hearing about it was true. They're not vaccinating. And as far as I know, until recently, they weren't even testing thousands of migrants coming across the border. So your point is correct. If this is a deadly pandemic and we all have to worry about getting infected, why the hell are you letting all these people across the border? We don't even know if they have it or they don't have it. Why Why is that? It's It's irrational. Yeah, absolutely irrational. But the crazy and the most irrational thing is that I guess the majority of people just accept all these things as rational. And it's interesting if you, you know, like we, we've been put in like on Twitter and I I only really went, started going on Twitter when I started writing these pieces. And that was only like in April, you know, I, I really didn't do anything before that, but you really get put into a lane. You know, you hear this thing. I, I used to hear this thing. People saying, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, you know? And so we've been put into our lane and we're kind of in the echo chamber. So we're speaking to people who are in agreement or, you know, but there's these, this vast swath of people who really are on board with this. And if you start looking at comments, like sometimes I just go through and look at comments of the people there. And I, and then I start thinking, are these real people? Or are they bots? You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. Like, can people really be saying because they're repeating the same propaganda lines exactly that have been fed to them? You know, things like, well, you know, you should wear a seat. It's like you wear a seatbelt, seat don't belt. you? Yeah. Or you know, um, you took the, you didn't have a problem with the polio vaccine, did you? Or you know, I mean, they, they they're saying the exact lines, and and it's like repeated almost word for word over and over and over again in in people's comments, as if they you cannot have a rational conversation, you cannot present another perspective. It's quite impossible, and um, I think it's just because people. Okay, well, my thing is, you know, I go into this a lot, which is the whole pharmacy, the big pharma, because um, I worked. For a long time, you know, I created a a, a nonprofit uh, called Inside Out Writers. I co-founded it, and it's a creative writing program for incarcerated youth in Los Angeles. I did that back in 1996, and then it sort of got taken over by Hollywood. So I really learned what you know about the nonprofit world in that in in that during that time. But um, so I worked a lot. I've worked with thousands of youth, you know, inside facilities uh, in drug rehab places, um, schools everywhere. And, and, um, within the community, um, always was helping kids and the, and the drug, um, the, you know, the issue with drugs, the fact of the matter is, and I write about this in some of my articles, like happily slipping into our straitjackets was one of the first pieces that I wrote and my most recent piece as well, that, um, we have to accept the fact that we are a country that loves our drugs. Yeah. We love our drugs. Yeah. You know, we have accepted this in our lives. We have it from the, like the 1950s when they first started, uh, you know, really marketing and even realizing that they could market products to children where children gained a lot of power in our society. Um, you know, people, we have drugs for everything, for every possible, you know, mental disease, mental illness. Everybody's got some kind of uh, problem that they need to be fixed, and they think that they can fix it with a pill. And so we have been doing this for so long. You know, this didn't happen overnight that people accepted this vaccine. It didn't happen overnight. 
you know, so we have progressively been putting more and more drugs into our bodies until we have reached this point. And that's why my latest piece, I talk about our children, our grandchildren actually turning into the internet of bodies, which is the next thing, you know, so there's so many, you know, so this, so this progression, we cannot forget and we have to accept are the responsibility of what of how we have allowed these drugs to overtake our lives. Yes, they have. Well, it's not just the drugs, it's the marketing of the drugs. The too. marketing, absolutely. Isn't it? Because they market all kinds of stuff for us, to you know, add us to us uh, that are not good for us. And we, we just kind of accept that manipulation. You know, I was thinking this morning about how we got here. One of the things I wanted to to explore with you is the idea of how we got here. And for me, you know, I think maybe we're the same age. I'm not sure, but you know, I've been around for a long mm-hmm. time and, and, um, uh, you know, if we're I've, both talking about grandchildren. We're yeah, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I've seen us relinquish over the decades more and more stuff. And it's, it's kind of as, as diverse as the idea that, at some point, we stopped being able to call a corporation or a company that's providing us the thing we pay for and speak to a person there, right? They offshored all the call centers, what they now call customer care. And of course, these are major frustrations for us. We can spend hours on the phone. Nobody cares. At some point, we said, yeah, okay, corporations that we support and give money to can abuse us that way. I mean, there are now companies in Silicon Valley that don't even list a phone number. You can't, that you, you do business right. with them. You can't get these people on the phone. They, yet they don't want you to. So at some point we kind of accepted that little bit of inclusion. We accepted the hollowing out of, of the heartland of America by McKinsey. Oh, send all the factory jobs to, you know, to overseas. You know, and nobody, like all these little bits of power that we gave up. Also, I mean, the one for me that's huge is the seat pitch on airplanes. How did that happen? Like, how did we agree to be treated like cattle and stuck into seats that are so close together, we're throwing blood clots now? Like how, yeah. right? And and we just slowly let our power be taken, let the corporations become the, the connection to all those last thoughts of mine were that it's all corporations stealing our power and us just saying, oh, it's customer care. It must be better. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> and and I, I feel that we wouldn't be where we are if we hadn't allowed those small indignities to be so easily happening in the culture. What what do you think of that? Karen? Well, I think that you know, as particularly with the United States, bigger is better. Yeah. Right. I mean, they sold us this. Um, get the super size. Uh, you know, you you go to, you go to France and you've got these lovely little meals. Oh well, who could live on that? You know, <laughs> I can get. You know, I can go to. I don't know what. Uh, what restaurant in the United States, Olive Garden or whatever, and get this massive amount of food. So bigger is better, bigger corporations, bigger, you know, we are the biggest, we are the best, all of that. You know, it was in, um, uh, you know, we're the only, I think it's the United States and New Zealand that are the only two countries that allow drug companies to market directly to the public. And, you know, when that happened, I mean, if you are a woman watching, um, uh, you know, lifetime television or whatever, you know, all the ads are about 
some kind of, you know, you're not depressed, you're not feeling good, yeah. take this, you can feel better. And because we're supposed to feel good, you have to, you know, this is America, we're, we're all doing great, you know. So if you're not feeling good, there must be something wrong with you. Well, actually, go, I would say, you know, go live in the little village in uh, Egypt, which is what I did, and see, remember when I was in Senegal, I never saw so many, you know, happy people, but... Yeah. um you know, it's so, so we're, so we're told that the only way that we can be successful or be happy is if we accept these things. And of course, yeah. So these huge companies and, you know, I've written pieces about, uh, about that, you know, the gods of tech and pestilence. I wrote a piece about that, um, who the, who these people are and how they got there and how we allowed them to get there and the, the close connection between, these gods of earth, these earth gods, um, and our, and our government, you know, I, I mean, the government, you know, the people imagine how do they sleep at night? If they're still even alive, you know, they've sold their souls to, to these companies or to these gods, you know, they, they are owned. I always said before, even before this ever happened, you know, anyone who gets that high up in government, they have compromised and compromised and compromised their integrity. You know, at first it's a little bit, just a little bit. You know, oh, I can do it's for the good of my constituents, or whatever. I'll compromise this little thing. You know, but, but but the further up that you go, the more you compromise and and the more you are able to justify it to yourself. And so to actually stand up for what you believe and to say no, how many people do we know that, you know, you, how many people have great success doing that? It, it's almost virtually impossible. Well, and, and what you, d- you describe what is, in, in my opinion, one of the now fundamental flaws of democracy as democracies are now. And that is that in order to get elected, you have to, um, you have to be pretty good at being a sleazebag, right? You have to, absolutely, right, the very qualities that help you manipulate people to get them to vote for you are qualities that should exclude you from governance on ethical grounds, right? That This is what I used to say about the Clintons, who were terrific at, at manipulating those systems, but were terrible in governance because they were so corrupt. And my, my belief is, um, as a former lefty, but my belief mm-hmm. is that it was the Clintons. I, I, I agree with Christopher Hitchens that the Clintons destroyed mm-hmm. the American left. I, re, I really do. But but on that basis, the whole system now is attracts people of lesser moral character. I will also say lesser intellect. I mean, we are governed by buffoons <laughs> right now. It's, it's, it's scary. Right, that's scary. So I, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and just circling back to quote Jen Psaki, on something that you just mm-hmm. said, and that is that she, Jan Saki said, a- admitted that they were calling Facebook about things they didn't like and wanted them pulled down and, and admitted that Facebook was actually doing the bidding of the Biden administration. I mean, absolutely. You know, it's like, it's, what's that line you said? I can't believe this is happening. That was yeah. another one. <laughs> was like, happening. It's like, yeah, I wonder how many times that we'll, we will say that today yeah. after we leave this interview. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it's happening, but it is happening. That's the thing. It is happening. And I don't know, uh, you know, I mean, if you look, okay, if you look down through history, this does happen over and over and over again. But the difference now is that it is, you know, because of the way that we can communicate, it is a global, it's a global thing that's happening, which is, of course, the dream come true of these, of the, of the, you know, 
people who are running, running things, that they can have this type of uh, global influence over us. But, um, you know, it's more of, you know, I think that if we don't address the basic problems of humanity, that once we, what, why is it that once a person gets more and more power, you know, as they say, they become more and more corrupted. Why is that? What is that? Is that a flaw? Or is this part of, you know, I mean, we can look at it in two ways. I mean, obviously the people who are in charge think, I, I think they must think that they are doing this for the best of humanity. And if you look at someone like Elon Musk, who I'm really fascinated with, who, um, you know, his whole idea he, is that we should populate space and even Hawking said, you know, well, we're going to blow up our planet. We should. So the only answer is to occupy space. Are they stupid? Is this their answer? Th- these intelligent people that they, you know, so it, it's it's like the teenage kid, like we were talking about before, the teenage kid who who messes up his bedroom and then just moves on to the next room. Oh, well, they, I'm not concerned with that. I'm just going to move on to the next bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Do they really think that? you know, they can trash this planet and then move on. And if there are, you know, imagine the arguments that there would be about who's going to mine whatever on Mars or who's going to, you know, or who's going to, uh, you know, set up that, that space station on the moon. Just imagine the magnitude of this and how, and if they really, I mean, if they really want to do this, how they're going to have to mine our own earth to reach those goals. I mean, as we are locked down and suffering, the first hotel in space is <laughs> yeah. opening in, what is it, 2028 or 2027? Yeah. I yeah. mean, does that not give 2027. Pause? Yeah, 2027, you said in your story. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Does yeah. that not give people pause? And, and it's just like, well, and not only... And well, and, I'm not, I know I'm not going to that hotel. No, no one's <laughs> inviting me either. But also, you know, Jeff Bezos did his big moonshot, or not moonshot, but rocket shot too, very mm-hmm. recently. People are locked down, starving, depressed, and he's like in a cowboy hat with his new girlfriend. Woo, woo. I oh, just yeah. spent, right? Like that whole thing. I thought, like, do you, like, so the question about that event, and I, I have to watch myself because I did a film for Amazon and Amazon okay. Studios are really nice people. So, but I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say this. You know, does does Jeff Bezos not understand that he's looking like this is the French court now? or Or does he know it looks like the French court and he doesn't give a shit. Like I can't figure out how they rationalize their completely cruel and inappropriate behavior. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't think we can ever get it because we're not them and we haven't, you know, gone through, imagine going through that process of getting to where they are and having that much power. That's something that we can never understand. And to believe like all of this, you know, I mean, all of this experimentation, you know, what is it all leading to? Obviously, you know, they are saying that um, in order to survive in space, we cannot, our bodies are, um, you know, cannot survive there. We must change our bodies. We must adapt. We must change. So there are definitely bigger goals down the road. And you have to think, you know, well, what, let's look at, you know, 500 years from now or so, if we survive this, we will be something other, you know, the human race will be something other. If you look at it from their perspective, you know, they will have been on the, you know, these, I don't know, great, like, uh, 
explorers in a sense, you know, like, and that, that at that point, you know, there will be a new way of looking at the universe or whatever, but at what cost to our soul? Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at, like, I'm wondering even about, you know, the arts and everything. If you are, if you become more and more of a machine or trans, the transhumanism, what do you, and you don't experience, um, you know, like if you can just take a drug or get be, or drugs are inputted into your body, which stop diabetes, does that mean you can eat as many hamburgers as you want? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. does that, what, what will an artist, you know, if you can't have these experiences or if you want to climb a mountain and you can just inject yourself with something that makes you be able to climb that mountain, where is the, you know, the, I mean, the whole idea of the human spirit of overcoming adversity, all of these things are gone. So what do you write about? What do you tell stories about? What do you inspire your, yourself with? You know, the, these are questions that do they ask themselves these questions? No, they do not ask. Exactly. Themselves. They don't. And you had a great line, again, about who is running the show, which is the ordinary citizens who are being governed by people that we wouldn't have wanted to hang around with in high school, right? Yeah, the, the nerds. We wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, the nerds. And it's not just that they're nerds. Nerds are fine. I, I admire right, right. nerds. But, 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 but the, those are not the people sitting around ruminating on the big questions of ethics and life and communications and humanity. They're just not, they're not built that way, those guys and women. And so, but, but somehow they've wheedled their way in to running the whole show. And we're now being governed by guys who have probably never cracked a philosophy textbook in their life. Maybe Jack Dorsey, cause he's yeah. sort of flaky in yeah. an interesting way, but right. But, 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 but they're not people I want making decisions about what I can read online about COVID or, or what I can read about politics. I don't trust their judgment. They're not smart about those things. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they, these are the guys that were, you know, uh, sitting in their basements, uh, playing video games and watching porn. You and know, watch- uh, well, I can't speak to you know, I can't speak to them. To I just say, this is what the image that I have in my mind. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, very, you know, obviously very bright in certain ways, and you know, something sparked this in our, you know, because things don't just happen. You know, something sparked this in the ether or whatever, you know, um, to, to create this because there was people, uh, you know, connecting with this energy around the world and this, and this happened, you know, this happened to us. So, um, so, so this, and, 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 and I think that, you know, the Bible says, you know, the, the, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. The words are more powerful than weapons, words. And the fact, you know, when the internet came came about, suddenly information was available to everyone. Any information that you wanted was available to anyone. I watched my, my youngest son, um, I tell this story in one of, one of my essays, how he would, uh, he started, he was like, I don't know, 10 years old or whatever. He was playing this game called Night Online and it was created by somebody in Turkey and, and he was connecting with kids all over the world. It wasn't anything bad. It was a great, it was a great thing. And within that game, he was, um, 
it, it was like a from a medieval times or something. So you would barter, you would trade, you would negotiate. He was learning amazing things in this game that he was not learning in school. And at a certain point when that happened, children were actually further along in the way that they could gather information than the adults that were teaching them. And so there were these children who went really far and nobody, you know, within this technology, you know. And so I think that's where that all came out of. But of course, like anything, it became corrupted. You know, people figured out ways that they could use it. And information is dangerous. I don't think there's any government throughout history who has really wanted the populace to have access to all information. No, they don't. So so they need to close off that information. And that's what they're doing now. They're making certain things inaccessible. They have to control it. And, and that's, you know, just what what happens um well i i feel also that information has been cheapened you know it, it used absolutely. to be right like i i've lived my life as an investigative journalist and someone i really dig research i love researching things and and i've seen a qualitative change in the last decade over what is really attainable and not and now looking for information on the internet or anywhere really um, is hard because it's the, the results you get are so kind of corrupted by the Absolutely. algorithms. You know, it's just and so it's all cheapened. Like I, I don't, I don't feel like I'm getting really what I have a feel. You know, an intuitive feeling. I'm not getting what I need. I have to do it a different way. I, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just we're we're bombarded we're, with, with with information, and the information itself is kind of it, it's meaningless. And that's why I I encourage people to go back to common sense. And because you know, even a, even a scientist, uh, you know, what's what is science? Uh, you every science scientist starts with a bias. You you cannot do anything without starting with some sort of a bias. So you have a theory, and and you seek to. Pr- prove that theory. And so you have, how do we really be honest with ourselves? You know, that, that's the big question too. How do we really be honest? And and so I want to say this quote from C.S. Lewis. (laughs) It's from his marvelous book, That Hideous Strength. Um, and, and this is what he said. Why you fool? It's the educated reader who can be gold. All our difficulty comes from the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted that they're all propaganda and skips the leading articles. He buys his paper for the football results and the little paragraphs about girls falling out of windows and corpses found in Mayfair flats. He is our problem. We have to recondition him. But the educated public? The people who read the highbrow weeklies don't need reconditioning. They're all right already. They'll believe anything. <laughs> so well, that that's really funny because the I have a best friend that I speak to virtually daily who's um in the film business. And uh and we talk daily. Everybody who listens to the show knows us. We talk daily because we can, because She's in a business and I live in a world where we sometimes can't say the things we say, like I'm saying to you right now, you know, you can't mm, say some exactly. of the stuff people. So, and, and we, we were talking the other day about how when we're on the road, as I was for years, I always thought the cab drivers were the smartest people in the world because, because they were frequently immigrants with PhDs often, you know, or not. But they certainly, I remember during the Iraq war, they understood the geopolitics of that mistake better than 
like anybody, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we were just saying that very thing, you know, the elites are kind of failing on so many levels right now, you know, our the foreign policy and obviously on COVID policy. I want to ask you a bit more about just what's happening in DC because Mm -hmm. I love some of your thoughts about Afghanistan um, which I was pretty trauma. I'm still traumatized by what yeah. happened there, Karen. I'll tell you, I, 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 I am like off kilter over watching it happen, trying to figure out what it means, trying to figure out why they did it, and then realizing nobody's going to pay a price for it either. Like nobody ever resigns. No, no, no. no. Nothing. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrific. Absolutely horrific. It, it's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. When you think that, you know, I said one, you know, that drone that they dropped on the car, you know, uh, in retaliation, because suddenly they had intelligence, whereas before they had no intelligence. Oh, they were totally surprised that the country was going to be taken over. Yet suddenly they had this incredible intelligence that within this one car driving through Afghanistan, there was a terrorist, you know, they, they send off this drone only to discover it's an aid worker. Yeah. I thought it was a PR move. Didn't you think so? Of course. Yeah, of course yeah. it was a PR move. They didn't care. Who, you know, they did not care. And the children, and I was amazed that, was it Millie who said after that, he said, when he was asked, what are the names? He says, we don't know the names. They don't know the names. This is was you know this should be a huge big story. Yeah. You know it should be horrific. As a nation, we should be just. I mean, you know, you know that that's why if you can take if you can forget all the masses of information and just focus on one instance and look at it, it tells you everything. You know, rather than trying to absorb masses of of things but they move on don't they and here here's here is the tragedy this is why i feel we no longer have a democracy is is the idea that these guys now know millie and biden and blinken and jake's all these people who are totally blowing it in many ways but specifically in foreign policy they know that there is never going to be a consequence for them because the media won't hold them accountable. They know that now. And that's it's terrifying. very, it's very dangerous, isn't it? Isn't it? Absolutely I mean, terrifying. And, and, you know, the ordin- most people don't understand. And, and I have like, it makes me feel almost crazy. Like I want to, you know, just shake people and say, wake up. Because, you know, when all this happened, I was living in Luxor, Egypt. And uh, that's other stories that I talk about. But, you know, I saw clearly what was happening. I was living in villages where, you know, nobody had the luxury of wearing a mask. Nobody was posting on Facebook their pictures of sushi. And, oh, my God, I'm I'm locked (laughs) down, you know, and these workers are bringing me my sushi. Look at my sushi. You know, it, it seems it was so absurd to me. Grandparents were living in the houses. You know, there there was no way. And I ended up in an altercation uh, with a with a group of. And I tell the story in one of my in one of my essays. But I ended up facing down a mob of violent men of men who were about to take over my friend's villa. Basically, these men were standing outside this gate, and we were told in the night. And I go into it in the book. And I mean, in the essay, why, how this occurred. But in the night, you know, we were told in the night they were going to take over her villa because they felt that it belonged to them, not to her. And so I thought, I'm not going to just wait here inside. 
everybody had abandoned her. All the foreign women weren't talking to her. They were afraid. You couldn't go to the police there. This is also during the pandemic where, you know, all the foreigners, except for women who actually lived there, had left. There were no tourists. There was nobody there. And so I decided to go down to the gate and confront these men. Wow. So, So I went down to the gate and there was this big iron gate. And I stood there, it was like 20 men out there, and, and I yelled at them, who's in charge? And the one man who was a neighbor came forward. I'd never actually talked to him, but I knew he was the one in charge. But I said, who's in charge? I need to talk to you now. He came forward. They all were listening. And I said, in my most confident voice, I said, I'm an American citizen, and I have a letter ready to go to my embassy. I feel threatened here. You should, I should not feel like this. I am ready to go to the Los Angeles Times. Believe me, if anything happens to me, the whole world's going to know about it. And immediately the whole atmosphere changed. He started saying, Oh, we love America. We love, no, we have no problem with you. Our problem is with, you know, she was Swedish, the other, the woman that, yeah. Yeah. And so in the end, I was able to invite him in and they talked. Now I know, but this is what people don't realize. That was when Trump, the crazy guy, was president, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know now, if I was standing at that gate now, they would laugh in my face. They would yeah. tear me apart. That's like the reality on the street, you know? So people can have these big um, intellectual conversations about this, but that's the reality. We are not respected. We are not, you know, you know like this is a dangerous situation that, that we are in. Well, you've got you've got a president who is clearly cognitively seriously impaired, Absolutely. right? Yeah, and the world knows it. So the question, so I'm, I I just want to kind of interrupt where we are and say this thing that just came into my Twitter feed, which is kind of typical of some of the stuff I'm I'm getting, and maybe get you to respond. So this person who has been following me for a while tweeted just two minutes ago about the propaganda uh, tweet. Um, Absolutely true, as I gave up last night. The government controls my life. Easier just to do what they want. Hopefully it's not too bad. This is in reference to my my tweet about propaganda and turning the faucet off and on, et cetera, et cetera, which got a huge, it's got like 5,000 retweets, or which is a big thing that's ever, ever done. And I thought, wow, that's really hit a nerve. And here's this person saying exactly what I'm hearing on Twitter, my emails from people listening to the show. I just, I, I gave, they, they're surrendering to something they mm-hmm. don't even believe in. It's not, right? Yeah. And it, we will see more of this, I'm sure, because, you know, with uh, Biden's six points uh, that he brought about, you know, the, his, his, his lecture that he gave uh, yep. to all of us. And then, <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> which, you know, I, yeah, I gave up on people treating me like that. I thought I was an adult, first of all. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, I thought we were adults with our own minds, but apparently not. And uh, and and then he has assured us that in October there will be more. And I think by the winter, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, there will, you will see a lot of this happening. People will just, and you, you know, it, it's not, what do you do? Can you judge this, judge people for this? You know, I mean, people are really, they're doing the best that they can. There will be a backlash. Uh, I, you know, I lived in um, Yugoslavia in the eighties. And um, I mean, so I've seen that world too. And also we, as a child, we traveled through there 
And actually, my family smuggled Bibles into communist countries when I was a child. That was one of the crazy things we did. Wow. And so I saw, you know, this affected me a lot because I didn't like, you know, my we had met this guy, I'll tell this story. My, we had met this guy, Brother Andrew, in um, Denmark who smuggled Bibles. My dad thought, well, that's a great idea. We're going to do that. So we got this suitcase full of Bibles. And we, and before every border crossing, my dad would pray that the guards would blind the eyes, uh, that, that God would blind the eyes, eyes of the guards <laughs> to the suitcase. And I swear, they looked in every other suitcase. I mean, they looked in, they tore out the lining of my mom's purse. They, they never looked in that brown suitcase. I can say that. But what happened was when we finally got to Romania to our contact, he wasn't there. <laughs> so we'd taken these Bibles all this way to give to this man. And he had been, unbeknownst to us, he had been taken out of the country for $7,000. He was a pastor. He'd, he'd left the country. And so what do we do with these Bibles? Well, what happened was my dad was like, well, this must still be God's will. He was never discouraged. And so we started giving the Bibles away. And we and we met this one pastor of this underground church and we took the Bibles there. And, you know, I hated those Bibles. <laughs> I was a person of little faith. I was like, let's just put them by the side of the road. I, these Bibles terrify me. You know, I knew that, you know, it could be a serious crime. But when we brought those Bibles, I will never forget the tears of joy, how much it meant to these people that they had these Bibles, that, you know, that they were not, uh, that, that all of this had been taken from them. Yeah. And so I feel like we are in a similar position here where, yeah, you know, how do you stop this? How do you not give in? You know, people are discouraged. They give in. But I do believe, you know, we are at the forefront of this and there will be people who will continue like you're a fighter. I'm a fighter, you know, there are fighters and that's maybe certain people's role, you know, to fight. But, you know, for the majority of people, most people just want to live their life and that's how it should be. They should be able to do that. And so they're going to give in. That's going to happen. But eventually there will be a resistance that will rise up because that's what always happens too. So, you know, See, I you know, hate that. the idea that, and I, you know, I, I don't know if I told you this before we started rolling, but the theme of today's, I was trying to have a theme, and the theme for today's show is forgiveness. And at some point, we're going to have to get back to whatever, when, when this ends, I don't even know what this ends even looks like now. Things are so upside down. But when 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 the imminent threat of tyranny uh, lessens or goes away, and there's an opportunity for the citizenry to come back together in a kind of a truth and reconciliation or, you know, what whatever the meaningful vehicle is, we will have to start thinking about forgiveness, even no, though I'm, I, I'm not feeling that way right now. I, I confess that. I, I know, as a recovering alcoholic, that Forgiveness is the way forward, always. All otherwise, it's corrosive. But, but right now, I'm sort of hanging on to my righteous anger because that also gets me through the days. Exactly. Yeah, and you have to hold on to that righteous anger. That gives you the energy. I mean, it's a process. You know, there comes a point, just like in your life. You know, I mean, when you're a teenager, you rebel. You know, you go through these stages in your life, and if you're fortunate enough to live long enough, you come to a realization of that forgiveness and, you know, and I, that's so important, absolutely important, or there is no 
there there becomes no it, then it just foments and it just you know it's 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 horrible if you cannot forgive if you cannot move on and you cannot have compassion you know there is no compassion now it's horrifying the things that you see people saying about the unvaccinated mm-hmm. it's horrifying that they are you know unclean you know we were being dehumanized uh you know put into this you know it's quite frightening and it will not i mean i don't see that getting any better so um so what do you do on the other side you throw hatred back you know you you fight you fight but you know i'm i've studied martial arts for 30 years yeah <laughs> and um you know and so in within that fight you do not start a fight but you finish a fight <laughs> that's that's always my attitude maybe you know you finish the fight to the best of your ability and you stand on your righteous you know position I, I think I'm also looking, though, for a, a softening or a shift in my in my person in the sense that we cannot continue to exist in a state of fight or flight indefinitely. We can't. It's killing us. And it will kill us. It's not healthy, right? So for me, the just the idea of forgiveness causes a bit of a shift in me. You know, the... The, you know, the frontal lobes start to engage more and I look at people with more sympathy. But I, I will also tell you that I can go off. Like, okay, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> My dog has a problem and I tried to call our vet and the vet would not answer the phone. Not only would they not answer, it didn't have an answering service. You got some weird recording like just sort of go, they didn't say go away, but it was, you couldn't do anything, Right. So I was trying to get the vet for three hours. This is a vet I worship and love. He's kind to the animals and doesn't gouge people. So I thought, well, this is weird. I looked on the internet. He's, you know, the office hasn't closed. So over I drive with the dog in the back, not insisting he see her, just to, I wanted to make an appointment. I had to physically drive there to make an appointment, right? So I get yeah. to the vet's office and you have to wait in line to get in. You can't, like the whole process was arduous yeah yeah really really annoying so i finally get in after spending 45 minutes just trying to make an appointment with my vet and i saw a sign on the wall that said abusive behavior toward our staff will not be tolerated right and i thought like i'm gonna have a t-shirt made that says abusive treatment toward your customers will not be tolerated. You know, COVID is used yeah. as an excuse to just treat people like garbage. And it's those, I, I tell that story just to say that I was so enraged. I didn't, I was polite and everything, but boy, I was vibrating. I thought, well, wow, when did the vet stop answering the goddamn phone? You know? Yeah, it's, 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 and I mean, when you, you know, it's a whole breakdown of society of just common decency yeah. and all of this that's happening. Um, I have a, a really a funny story like similar to that where when I was in, just in Los Angeles with my daughter, uh, helping her because she's about to have another baby. And my boyfriend back from college, who I've kept in touch with over the years, where we've remained friends, but I've, I haven't seen him in many, many years. He happened to be in LA at the same time. And so, uh, and his father had built this, um, he was, father's an architect and he built this beautiful house in a certain area of, uh, uh um, there, I won't say where, but anyway, so he said, well, come and see it because when we had been 
together in college, you know, 100 years ago, he had just been building this house. So I went there, just drove there. Uh, to see it, and um, I get out of the car, and the minute, and the minute I get out of the car, he says, um, "Well, you are vaccinated, aren't you?" <laughs> you know, and 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 it just like hit me in the face, like a like a ton of bricks. You know, I remembered this guy, you know, this fun loving hippie kind of guy, you know, and where what happened to people? What happened? And then I said, "Well, no, I'm not. If you know, you want me to." I, but I'll respect, you know, whatever you, you know, you want me to wear masks, his elderly father is there. He says, well, we've all been vaccinated, so I guess it's okay. But it was kind of like he was like, like, you know, making this decision like, like over me, you know, like, yes, you know, it, I mean, it's like, do it's you like, measure up? Do you, or does she? Yeah, exactly. And that, well, uh, I don't know, but you know, I, you know, it's risky. And even, you know, again, we can talk about you know, why is it risky? You're, this doesn't make sense but anyway he did allow me in and you know we were we had a you know a nice lunch together you know with his father and all of that but it really you know that that people that you know this gulf and it will widen you know it widens more and more so do you want to be on this side of being ostracized like this or do you want to you know try and be part of society but the thing of it is is that you know, I have a I have a friend. I told his story. Um, the reluctant revolutionary. He he was he was studying in the United States. He's from Iran. He was at Purdue University when the when the um, uh, in Iran when the, uh, the 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 Shah embassy fell. yeah when the embassy was taken over and the the hostages there yeah. and so suddenly everything changed you know for him and there were these revolutionaries young revolutionary um, Iranians on the campus and they started producing this um, newspaper you know for everyone and they were so they believed that this was their the answer you know things were going to change it was going to be better with this revolution and they were all gung ho on, on board with it and he. Got my friend, he got so angry because he saw it very differently. He saw what was going to happen. And so he wrote for just in a fit of anger on this paper, Death to Comedy, and he threw it on the on the table in the library and left. Well, then there became this big investigation. Who wrote this? Who wrote this thing? And in fact, people were going to come from uh, Chicago to invest, you know, the, these revolutionaries to investigate. And he got very, very scared for his life. In yeah. fact, actually, wow. if they found out who he was and he actually left there um, for the, uh, at that time. But, um, but the thing of it is, is that every single one of those revolutionaries, when they went back to Iran were killed. <laughs> You know, they took advantage. That's what people don't realize. When these things happen, they will take advantage of you, whoever you are. You know, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, whoever it is, they don't really care about you or your cause. They will use you until they are finished. So everyone, even that thinks, well, I'm okay, I'm right, I'm part of, you know, no, you, they will, you know, eventually they will come for everyone unless you give everything because it will never be enough. It will, it will never, never be, be enough. enough. I, yeah, I, I totally see that. And I felt that way for some time. Um, I want to ask you about something you said earlier um, about the Met Gala. I just want to go back there for a minute because I, you know, I mean, there's so much to hate about what happened, but Ugh. not just the ugliest clothes in the whole world. Where is Audrey Hepburn, right? And Valentino when you need them. I mean, really, I, I, I just... 
that is that is a visual representation of the sickness in the culture that anybody thinks that stuff is attractive. Do they think that? Like, who wants to put on an ugly dress and be photographed? They look terrible. Like that. That shows, in a sense, it's a perfect woke moment because what they're wearing is garbage. But they've been told by the ideology, because it comes from Balenciaga or whoever, that it's not garbage. So they pretend that they, they don't see that it's garbage. It's a perfect emperor's new clothes thing. Like exactly. I, I, Right? I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, I posted a picture of Cary Grant in his tuxedo. Like, what, what, what happened? I know. Where did this Karen, go? I know. Me too. I was talking about Audrey on that day. I'm sure a lot of people have no clue who I'm talking about. But I know. It's sad, isn't it? It is sad. And, and I mean, even people, you know, make comments, well, you know, they hid, they did stuff too, but they hid it. But yeah, well, there was some kind of... um uh, etiquette to society at that time. You know, there were yeah. things that you should do in public and things you shouldn't do. You know, there were some kind of rules that you felt like you knew what was going on, but now there was nothing. I mean, it's it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. And it's not even, you know, this is not artistic. It's not, you know, whatever. I mean, are they making some kind of, I mean, you know, AOC with her statement, which is completely, I mean, the irony, I mean, I can't even begin to, I mean, words fail me. You know, the words just fail me with her wearing that dress and walking around like that. And, you know, she has a seat at that table. She has a seat, at, but she's like, she's the new celebrity for the young, for the young. She, yep. you know, I mean, actors and actresses, I don't know that, 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 I don't know what will happen even to that whole industry. It's being taken over by China anyways, you know, and, and the, and, you know, the, the censorship that, that's happening now. You know, I know a few people in that, in that industry, um, who wouldn't dare say, you know, out loud the things that they might say to me in private about it. But, um, but, you know, she, you know, the young people, they just love her. Why? Because she's cute and she's like, you know, there's just something about it that speaks to them, but you know, they don't, you know, anyway, she's the new celebrity. What can I say? Well, yeah. And and, let's just help you that. So the dress said tax the rich, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, like it was very Marie Antoinette and, uh, and here's the thing, Here, here's the thing about that event, that the media buy into it as much as the people involved in it do. So AOC was pretty confident this was not going to bounce back on her. There was a little bit of yammering, yeah. but she was not, and she knew she was in no jeopardy of ever being taken down a peg in any real way, right? Because the media just support that idea. They they support the idea that the left should be corporate and about money while pretending to be something that they aren't. I mean, those tickets were 30 grand. Yeah. I know how it works because of having formed a nonprofit. Um, you know, there's a saying uh in that world, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You know, I mean it's a you know, they give the impression that they're being charitable, but all they do is, you know, make, make deals. Well, I'll give $20,000 to your charity. If you give $20,000 to my charity and then we can give each other an award, you know, about how charitable we are. And that's how it goes. Um, Rose McGowan has been 
kicking up lately, which I think is great. And I'm kind of a new fan of Nicki Minaj. So yeah, absolutely. Me too. <laughs> I know. I can't, couldn't stand my younger, my youngest son. He just loves Nicki Minaj. Oh, listen to this. As I was like, oh, I know, you know, but, but a uh, big fan now. I mean, she was brave and Rose McGowan. Yeah, she's brave. I've watched her, you know, progress as she went along and never, you know, that's another, yeah, that's a fighter. I mean, never, didn't give up no matter what, did not give up, kept going, kept going, kept going. And ruthless and, and ruthless in her calling ruthless. out people, no yeah. matter how powerful they exactly. are. Exactly. And now calling out the total decadence and nonsense of Hollywood too, Hollywood politics, right? It's just mm -hmm. great. Um, I want to ask you about this, this phrase that you used in one of your articles that you said earlier in the interview, you talked about something called menticide, which I think kind of bespeaks the slow erosion of our cognitive abilities due to this messaging that they're doing. Explain to me um, what that is. And also, who was, you were quoting somebody with an odd name. What's his name? Roop or something. Who was the person? Oh, hold on one second. I'm just going to. I thought I wrote it. Yeah, there. I don't even know if I can pronounce his name correctly, but used Merlu, um, and his book, uh, The Rape of the Mind, which is an excellent book where he, he's, so menticide. So I, this is the, the piece that, this is a piece that I wrote, um, let's on September 3rd called Utopian Madness. And, um, so we, I talk about how we're in, uh, the midst of a mass psychosis and it's built on delusions, which originate in the, in the ruling class. So, these people believe, I think they believe they're, they are also deluded. They believe they are our saviors, but they also, I feel the fear in these, you know, in our, in these people too, in the press, these, you know, they have a lot uh, to answer for, for what they're doing and they better do what they're told. They better do what they're told basically. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so menticide uh, is an old crime against the human mind and spirit um, it's an organized system of psychological intervention, and this is a quote from The Rape of the Mind, and judicial perversion through which a ruling class can imprint their own opportunistic thoughts upon the minds of those they plan to use and destroy. So and that's where we talk about these uh, waves, these waves of fear that build and build and build, uh, interspersed with these moments of relative calm, you know. Yeah. And where you are allowed. So the more it, it, it is like an abusive relationship, because when a person is in an abusive relationship, you know they have these periods of calm where oh good you're doing the right, and then the minute that you that, you know that you do something a little bit outside of what you're what you're supposed to, and you can't help but make a mistake because nobody's perfect, you get you get thrashed, and it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. You need to and so more and. It, and it can, and it escalates further and further and further. And as it goes along, you just begin to accept it and you accept the prison that you've been put into. It's a prison of your, you open the door and you close it. Like we accepted these lockdowns. It's incredible that people accepted that. I sense it, there's a bit of mass psychosis here. Right? Mass psychosis. Yeah, yeah. A mass psychosis. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yep. And um, the so. visual proof of it, because, because I, I am with you also in the idea that the elites are now kind of a threat to the rest of us. And the visual proof of that is they're not even trying to hide the fact that when they gather, the only people wearing masks are the servants. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, like I said before, you know, you see these, um, it's 
horrifying. I mean, you see these pictures or in the news of these uh, celebrities or what have you. I mean, Obama's, you know, birthday. I mean, it's been talked about a lot comes to mind. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's was. donors. Remember Nancy that? Pelosi. That was absolutely because yes, not only absolutely. were everybody was a room of probably a hundred or if not more people. None of them masked and only the servers were masked. And I believe many of the servers were also black and brown, right? Yeah. And masked. And mask. Unbelievable. So we are losing our um, identity. We are losing also individualism. That's another thing that, you know, you must individualism somehow that America is based on this is somehow wrong now. I could tell you one story of my experience with uh, uh, with this, which really spoke to me a lot um, when I was, you know, running this nonprofit, which I built over a course of about six years. And it's now, it's in, uh, you know, in Los Angeles, but I left, I, I was ousted and I left, I stood up to this board and, and canceled. First time I was canceled back in 2005 and, yeah. uh, you know, stood up to them and said, I can't in good conscience support what's going on here. Um, tried to basically anyway, but at one point, you know, when I was building this organization, I was invited to this dinner. I was invited to, you know, some things like that with some Hollywood elite people at, um, Le Deux Cafe, which was like a pretty cool, um, place at that time in Hollywood. <laughs> and, um, and I was sitting next to this French uh, executive from Canal Plus and uh, uh, Universal Studios. And he was, you know, rather a little bit drunk and he was going on and on about, oh, it's so wonderful. What do you do with these children, you know, in jail and all of this? And uh, I go, I too love to help the little people. Yes. I said, really? I said, well, what happens? I was just, I'm curious. What happens when those little people get almost as big as you? And his whole demeanor changed. He turned ruthless and he looked at me and he goes, then I destroy them. <laughs> That's what wow. he said to me. And I never forgot that. Wow. I mean, yeah. he was a little drunk, so he probably said something he wouldn't ordinarily say, but I never forgot that. Then I destroy them. Oh, I love to help the little people. You know, this is the attitude. So whoever breaks into that club, God, who knows what they had to do to get there. Well, you know what I think, too? I, I think that given the level of wealth being flaunted now, that there's probably a fairly significant amount of sociopathy at play in the people succeeding in in the culture. And in don't you agree? I mean, we, my husband and I used to go to um, Harbor Island in the Bahamas, which is really ritzy, but you can do it sort of cheaply if you know how. And we would go for dinner at this place where the yachts came in, that the big Russian oligarchy yachts, you know, and they'd, they'd be parked there, moored there. And um, and you'd walk by them and you'd think like, wow, I'd be embarrassed if there was just two people on that big boat, you know, to be on that. But like, <laughs> there's something different about how they so easily accept to live the way they do while so many people... The struggle, and I don't even mean people like super poor people. I just mean they're they're consuming a lot, they're abusing a lot. They're, do you know? It's just it. It seems they're... they feed off of. They're like vampires. They feed off of the rest of us. You know that's how they survive. And um, I. I remember reading a story uh, in the Los Angeles Times back when it used to actually do real reporting of um, the Bill Gates Foundation. And um, this was, I don't know, maybe 
10 years ago or so. Um, and they were talking about how, you know, they're helping Africa and, you know, you know, doing all these, uh, inoculations for all these kids in villages. And they had this, they, they talked about one village where there's this line of kids, these kids lining up for their, um, you know, shots and they're all suffering from these, um, breathing problems you know they have these terrible terrible breathing problems and so they're helping them with their illnesses how nice however right on the horizon there is a factory spewing this garbage into the atmosphere also invested in by bill by the profit side of bill gates so it you know the two coexist and they feed each other so they create they don't want us you know these people who are talking about health and safety they don't want us well they want us you know dependent more and more dependent upon them i mean i consider what's going on an experiment you know we're all in a petri dish yeah it feels that way doesn't it being experimented on and um you know, you know, there are people feel like, oh, if I just, you know, if I just lick their boots a little bit more, they yeah. might let me into their club a little bit. And sometimes they do. It's like gambling, you know. I mean, maybe this time, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll succeed. And so I'll people, hit the jackpot this time, yeah. right? And by the time you're, you're so far got in by that point, you know, you, you can't get out. Basically, you can't get out. So that's, I think, you know, another thing that's happening it's a lot well it is a lot i mean we're we are kind we are dissecting in real time what i feel is the decline of a civilization i i don't think that's hyperbole actually i agree i I think we're we're seeing it and um I, i think it's sad other people don't see it i think people who some people are making the choice that if they just go along it won't be so bad and i suspect that for a time it won't be but i also feel and i say this on the show every week and i will say it until i can say it no longer that western democracies without neutral news medias cannot survive mm-hmm. and uh, you know i would say for you know probably the last <laughs> 6 or 7 years you know, we have been without a neutral media. We know who they want to be elected. They lie about the other person. They don't hold accountable a president that they like. Right. And that's sort of where we are. And that's why guys like Milley and Biden and Blinken and all these dudes who are screwing up. I mean, this has got to be the most failed presidency in the history of America. On and they don't metric. even try to hide it. it that's inc- they no longer even try to hide it or justify anything. They just move on. They just move on. They move on because Don Lemon is going to be cheering no matter what they do. You know, mm-hmm. um, all of the you know the legacy media, save a few, will be cheering or hiding or just not talking. I mean, there's so many stories. Like you just mentioned, Bill Gates. Let's talk about Bill Gates. You know, three months mm-hmm. ago. Because he was getting divorced, his wife was leaking stories about sexual impropriety. It was great. I thought, wow, you know, somebody's finally going to get Bill Gates. And then they just stopped, right? And I guess they stopped when he settled with her. Good move on her lawyer's part. That was well played. But why isn't the media still curious whether she's leaking or not? There was real malfeasance at Microsoft with women staff members, and no one's talking about it anymore. But you see, I see it a little bit differently because, uh, like, for example, remember Cuomo when he, oh. um, they got, what did they get him on? Not all the deaths. 
they got him on, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I don't know, in, improprieties with women, yeah. which, you know, there's, I've seen a lot worse than what he was accused of and people get away with it, but it, it's a, it's a distraction. I even think that, you know, because Bill Gates at that time was getting some bad press about some real things. And I think, cause I don't think anything like that gets, is by chance. I think that that was allowed to as a diversion to take away from, you know, the real problems. And then it just all went away. Like everybody forgot about, you know, about like there, there were some people that were beginning to question, you know, well, what's going on with these vaccines and all that kind of stuff. So, so they allow, I think they allow certain things as diversions to what, you know, so people will just forget because people's attention spans are very, um, you know, are very short and easily distracted. I know, you know what, I think you might be right. Look at, look at the way the, Wuhan lab Fauci accountability story has happened. You know, they first they covered it up for him and then they couldn't cover up anymore. So they were asking questions. Then they started covering up for him. Then they just stopped talking about it. Now the Intercept has a a piece that basically shows that Fauci Fauci was lying under oath to Rand Paul. He was perjuring himself. I thought, okay, now we finally got this guy. And now people stop talking about it again. So, so you, you know, you kind of live in this, in this, uh, heightened awareness that every time somebody does something bad somewhere in the world and you think they're going to be held accountable, it never happens. And that means that people who are misbehaving know that they are absolutely immune from any kind of, um, you know, from any kind of, of uh, punishment for their anything punitive. They, they know oh, that. Yeah. And there's a bigger picture here. You know, they, what, you know, the plan, you know, there's a bigger picture of, you know, I talk about, I have wrote a piece called, um, it's about designer babies and the master race and, you know, all of this, uh, you know, uh, these experimentation, uh, the vaccines and, uh, you know, genetic experimentations are, you know, they, they don't want that to come to the forefront. They must keep that hidden. Um, but it, uh, in December of 2018, there was a Chinese scientist, um, I can't pronounce his name, He Yang Q, who announced uh, the first, the birth of the first genetically modified babies. They were twin girls named Lulu and Nana. And the goal, and so they, they genetically modified these baby girls. And it, it, you know, you could read my piece to find out. It's quite fascinating what they actually did to these girls. And, and they don't even, they don't know whether, I mean, who has the right to do that? Who has the right to do that to, you know, th- these are ethical questions that we, I mean, if these kind of people are in charge, you can be sure that nothing good is going to come out, out of all of this. And these, the, these girls, nobody knows where they are now. They've just disappeared. So you can read that, that piece is, um, can read about designer babies and the rise of the master race. But I go into a lot of these issues and I would just say that, you know, when I started writing, I, I, I just felt like it was a big decision for me to start writing. You know, I don't take it lightly, the writing that I'm doing. Like every piece that I write, I mean, it's an essay. People say you're really long-winded. Yes, I am long-winded. <laughs> I usually stop my essays when Substack says you can't go any further. <laughs> you know, that's when my essays stop. And, and I'm like, I really don't care. It's like if somebody wants to read my piece, they'll read my piece. And it's, and, you know, because there's a lot of thought that goes into what I write. And some people have, have, have described it as, a lot of people have described it as, wow, like you said, like you're saying the things that I thought that, but I never 
could articulate or I thought I was alone in thinking this. And it's just, I'm, I'm so glad I felt like it, this has encouraged, you know, encouraged me so much, <laughs> depressed me, encouraged me, even people saying things like I cried, you know, I cried, I laughed, you know, reading, reading what, what you've written. And so when I started writing these, it, it was like, I felt like, you know, I don't know if one person reads what I write, I will have, and, and it changes their attitude. I've done something, you know, because, um, I felt it was really important. I felt a kind of, I, I feel a kind of a, a compulsion or an obsession to write these essays. So, um, so I'm, I'm really grateful to you that you, you know, have me on because I've only started doing this within the last like three months or so. So, well, uh, you know, as I said to you earlier, I love, stumbling into people who write and think the way you do and having them on, on the show. You know, we had Julius Rochelle and, and Bauer and AJK, some of these really wonderful people who I just stumbled upon and thought, wow, they're, because you guys are doing the thinking and writing that the mainstream media, not necessarily the news media, but their analysts should be doing. Even the right. analysts are doing <clears throat> shitty work. You know, they're just not yeah, I don't know how. And the problem is, is that you now have, yes, you have the other side. Like, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, voices or news stations, whatever, on the right who've done very well out of this pandemic too, you know, yeah. out of COVID. I mean, they, they, so, but the problem is, is that they, they're just competing against one another. So they feel like they, you know, to get as many voices, clicks or whatever, they have to do the same thing as the other side, only the opposite, you know, it's sort of like an athlete, um, you know, well, everybody else is on steroids, so I better be on steroids too, or I'm just going to get left behind. So I think that's what's happened. And then, but you still have these voices that are of reason that are, you know, that, that you can listen to, but they're not, you know, most people aren't going to sit down and take the time to look at that because they're just bombarded constantly yeah. by this other stuff. Well, and I'm sure that you, like like me and, and the other people I mentioned and many more, you know, I check myself every day. I'm, am I right mm -hmm. about this? Can things really be as completely screwed up as I think they are? Can they really Absolutely. be lying to us? I do do that every day. And after you know, a few minutes or an hour, I say, no, it really is this screwed up and on I go yeah. uh, about my day. I'm not sure that's happening on the other side. In fact, the opposite's true. They they push information away. They're afraid of it. Their eyes mm -hmm. glaze over. Mm -hmm. You know, it's zombie land or invasion of the body snatchers. They, they don't. I actually had someone, a loved one, let's leave it at that, yeah. say to me, you're always hitting me with facts. You've always got these facts. <laughs> like that was a bad thing. Yeah. Right? Don't depress me. Like, don't bring me down. Yeah. 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 I have yeah, to yeah. take another Xanax. Yeah. Well, I think that it is. I think that that attitude comes from the self curated social media feed. I've said that before. I think these are very dangerous things when people can choose the news they want and then it just feeds their own biases, their own, it confirms their own biases, right? It's very, yeah. Very I, I'm so curious. Like, I know I, I never say anything on Facebook anymore. I got switched off of, I got beaten royally on Facebook when I first started trying to dare suggest a few things, but because as you, I had many left leaning people as friends or acquaintances or in the writing industry. And, um, you know, I'm so curious. It's like, is there anything still on Facebook? I don't know where people are. I mean, I know that you can look at, um, news feeds and things like that, but are there 
groups of people are, are, are there, I mean, because I don't have, like if I post, I'll, the only thing I do on Facebook anymore is I just, I'll just say, here's my latest essay and I'm completely ghosted. I don't know if it's that nobody sees it because Facebook stops them or it's just that people don't, you know, they people are silent now on Facebook basically. Yeah. And at least still on Twitter, you can speak, but, but you're speaking again to the same People. People. And while well, Twitter's okay, I mean, they did kick Alex Berenson off and they mm-hmm. kicked Naomi Wolf off in part for something that it turns out she was right about. There was a confirmation. She had some stories about menstruation being affected negatively right? yeah. and, and strangely. And people were like, oh, what's she talking about? These are anecdotal stories about women who are, you know, in menopause who are now bleed, blood, da, 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 da. And it, it turns out what she was saying was correct. But she was labeled, I hate this phrase, especially against women as batshit crazy for saying it. And by, she was labeled that by some people I really respect. So I was pretty pissed off about that. But, but it turns out she's true. Like the, the people on there who are getting censored are people who are saying stuff that's either, you know, a logical evidence-based analysis or will become a proven true fact in three to six months. And nobody ever apologizes for that. And, and my analysis is, you know, if the doctor in Australia who discovered that thalidomide was actually deforming all the babies he delivered, if he was silenced by, by big pharma, that thing could have gone on for another couple of years. Right. But he was, he went public with the information and, and, you know, went far in stopping that crisis. But I don't think we could do that today. Big Pharma, no, wouldn't, they wouldn't stand for it. They wouldn't stand for it. Right? This, this is just the beginning. If they can get everybody to uh, inject themselves, get, get injected with this vaccine, which I don't know, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that. So I won't speak on what it is or not is. But I know that it's for an illness that... 99.89% of the people, it doesn't affect them badly. So if they can do that and make this hysteria out of yeah. that, yeah. they can do anything. And this is only, I, I think it's like a test run. Like, I don't know that there's necessarily anything. I don't know. I mean, honestly, they don't know. I mean, they, they, they had a meeting today, Pfizer, to approve these boosters, you know, yeah. without any real uh, testing or anything, and just and you know, two of their uh, the FDA, two of their top people, you know, resigned over over this. But it, you know, I'm sure that it will go through. But this is a precursor to something else. You know, this is not the end of the line. This is just the beginning of, of what's going to happen. You know, where where you know, I, I believe that people, you know, our immune systems, I mean, even using the words natural immunity, it's like, that's a bad phrase now, natural immunity. Oh my God, whoever, who would ever rely on that? That's just crazy. But, you know, so, so eventually we will be so dependent on these drugs, you know, and this is the thing, people will be dependent. You will not be able to unhook yourself, unplug yourself. You know, that, that's, that's what I, I believe what could well happen in the future. Yeah, it, I mean, be, and you know why people, smart people begin thinking this way? Because what we are witnessing makes no sense. Absolutely. There is no benign, well, there may be a benign and logical response to it, but they're certainly not telling us what it is at all. So, of course, we're going to think the worst. How else are we supposed to think about it? Right. It's, it's, it's well, anti, what they're doing is actually anti science, right? Like we had a guy on, um, and this became a bit of my mantra for a week or so, uh, named Human 
Nor Chasm. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh-huh. You should interview him. He's an interesting guy. I don't agree with him on a whole bunch of stuff, like about risk-benefit. He wants to inoculate everybody, yeah. except people with natural immunity and except people who are carrying active infection. But his here's what he says that kind of lifts the lid off of their deception. He says, they're not talking about immunity. They're talking about vaccinations. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. they wanted to mandate... They should mandate people who've had the vaccine and people who have natural immunity. But also, they should test the vaccinated people to make sure that the vaccines have actually made them immune because sometimes they won't. Don't you think if this was actually about an immune population that they would be behaving that way? They're not. And to me, more than anything, that sort of tips us over into a rational skepticism about what their motives are here. Exactly. And then anyway, it is, from what I understand, it, it, I mean, I think it was back in um, March that Walensky was saying, oh, yes, it makes you immune. And then a month later, she, uh, you know, walked that back and said, no, it just lessens the um you know, the, the severity of what, of what you get. So, so they're not even claiming any, I, I don't think that, that it makes you immune to this virus. They're just saying it lessens, um, the, the reaction that you will have. But the funny thing is before they ever had the vaccines, there was, most people didn't get a severe reaction anyway. <laughs> so they're only yeah. saying, how, yeah. how are they proving that, oh, well, with the vaccines, people get, I mean, how, are, how, how can they even prove that? When, you know, they can't even prove that when they take, when they've tested you, that it's for the virus that they claim that it's for, as far as I can understand. But all these things don't matter. You know, it doesn't, nothing that's logical or rational or reasonable matters. And also because at this point, imagine, you know, people have this tower of illusion that has been built is so big. That if you were to tear it down, what would people do? Even, you know, if it really, if you think about it from that perspective, you know, they would be lost and rudderless. Like they are clinging onto a lifeboat. People are literally cling, clinging onto a lifeboat that this, no matter what, it just has to be true. This has to make things better. It will make things better. And that's tragic. You know, that's very tragic for our, for our world. I feel this is the result of a secular society. I, I think... Oh, there you go. Well, no, I, you know why? Because I think people naturally need to believe in stuff. And I think regardless of whether people like religion or don't re- like religion, it fills a role in a healthy culture. And I think COVID is religion for people. Absolutely. It's a new religion. Yeah. And the vaccine is a sacrament, right? It's the proof that you are part of this group. And what happens in, as you know, being brought up in a religious family, that part of being that, well, the the basis for being in a religion is that you've agreed that facts and data don't matter, that you've suspended disbelief, right? Mm -hmm. And that you're buying into something that requires you to commit to a belief system regardless of what's in front of you right mm-hmm. like i'm i'm christian and i so i'm not saying that as a an insult i'm saying i'm a rational feminist and also a catholic i converted okay. to catholicism 
and knew when I was doing it that I was doing something irrational <laughs> that required the suspension, right, of disbelief. I, I knew all that when I was doing it. So, so I understand very well why people who are looking to fill that void would be the perfect people to embrace the COVID narrative because right. it, you know, it confers nobility. You know, you have someone who is infallible, Tony Fauci. You know, if you look at the precepts of most religions, specifically, I guess, Christianity, but others too, it fits the bill. Absolutely. Well, my, um, you know, my, I was raised on a saying, many sayings, but there's a God-shaped vacuum inside all of us. Yeah. And if you don't fill it with God, it will be filled with something else. So if you take away, you know, that's why they, they've dismantled all the values upon which our society was based, derided it, you know, uh, and now it must be replaced with with something else. I have actually written about this, funnily enough, in a piece called The Problem of Faith. Not, it's like one of my least read pieces because it's not about, you know, COVID or whatever. But, um, but you know, there, there is, you know the, the fact of the matter is, is that our, we, everything we do in our life, we, it's based on faith. Like we are finite beings. We do not know, you know, everything that w- we go out of the door in the morning believing, having to believe that we will be okay, that we will not get hit by a car. We, nothing is for sure. Nothing is certain in our life, perhaps only that we will die. And we don't even know. We have not solved the most basic you know, no matter how much science, no matter how many brilliant minds, we have yet to solve the basic questions of life. You know, where does it come from? What is it? You know, and this is what they want to solve. They want to find the answers to this. And um, where do we go when we die? So, so we, you know, we we live with this fear that you know you need to over. We need to, and, and religion gives you a comfort from this fear, you know, that you can believe that. And, yeah. and so you have to, you're right. You have to suspend your, you know, you, you have to just jump off that cliff and believe yeah. that you will be saved, you know, and, and that's, and in a way, you know, I, I've come more around back to my, back to Christianity through all of this experience because it made me realize, I mean, I, I believe in like evil now, you know, I'm not, I was like, well, okay, you know, it, it, there is positive, there's negative, there's ra- rational, you know, there's all these things. So we try to describe it as e- good and evil, but you know, I'm not so sure anymore that there isn't some kind of a you know, battle above beyond what we understand, you know, you know um, that that's going on, but I think that the, the humility of being able to say, "I don't know." See, this was always my problem with Christianity. You know, I was supposed to have that, you know, pray that prayer and become a Christian. By the time you're nine, the the age of reason, you know, you're supposed yeah. to. The way I grew up, you're supposed to pray that prayer. Well. And I did it, and but I still had doubts. I've always, and I still have, you know, I'm a, just a doubting person because I have such an inquiring mind that sometimes, you know, drives me crazy. But, um, but the problem that I always had was like, once you, you know, believe with faith, then you're somehow supposed to make that leap to knowledge. Well, now I know. Yeah. But the, but the fact of the matter is you don't know. And, and so yeah. just to be able to say, and this is where the problem with religions and everything, to have to say, well, I know now, I'm right, you're wrong. No, to be humble enough to say, well, this is what I believe, because I think that would take care of a lot of the problems in the world if we all were able to say to one another humbly, this is what I believe, I respect what you believe, yeah. you know, and, um, but, you know, we, we, 
we somehow aren't able to do that very often. So that's the thing with faith and, and, and people have this hole inside of them that their hunger for something to believe in. And this is what the new thing is. And they've been very clever about that, how they presented it. I I think so too. Your idea about this, we, we say in recovery, even that people have a God shaped hole. So it's the same, Mm -hmm. Thing and that we filled it with alcohol, you know. So I'm, I'm not saying that all recovery is about becoming a Christian or religious, but it does, that language does work for some people very, very well. And I, I, I think we were primed. Like I, I don't think a secular society, secular in the way it is right now, is a very healthy one. And, um, you know, I feel that there's a, I, I've been reading a lot about the decadence of our culture now. I mean, you know, I love Nicki Minaj. I love what she's doing. But I, I went and watched one of her videos that had over a billion views. And the language was yeah. like Pornhub, you know. I mean, and, and I thought, gee, the kids are like, this is like, yeah, it's you quite... know, and she's a pretty little thing. And I'm like, oh, you know, really? Do you have to talk about yourself? I don't like it. But look, I, I would die to defend her right to say it at a thousand exactly. percent. Exactly. But I just, I don't think we're going in a good direction here this does not lift us up that does not um does not make us better people yeah and i think that well we might be seeing a crackdown on that sort of thing i don't know and you know i mean it's completely yeah it is completely out of control but that's been allowed to take away all restraint you know basically that there's nothing that 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 you have to do or hold on to in actual fact then they they bring in this strict you know the, the strict order these strict laws because people people are actually hungry for that and so that then people actually yeah. adhere adhere to that um, yeah. but you know I I like you always hear like it's whoever tells the la- story the loudest or the best uh, you know to, wins right and um, you know we forget how important our our stories are, you know, they've, they're trying to shut off our past, our history, you know, books that, that they're saying are bad, you know, because, well, they were written at a certain time and that's, and that has integrity for that time. You know, how do we learn about ourselves if we aren't able to appreciate and understand our progress? You know, hopefully there's some sort of progress or to appreciate our history. And, um, I, I remember, when I was a child, we were in Fez <laughs> in Morocco, um, and we met this amazing uh, professor. I haven't written about this yet in my essays, but I'll weave it into my essays somehow at, at some point. And um, he took us around Fez and told us about Islam, and it was really, really beautiful how he presented the story story to me. It was beautiful, uh, or to us, um, about how it's a you know, these five layers of Islam and the, and it's like an onion that you peel. It was just beautiful. The way he presented it was so beautiful. Yeah. And then in the evening, we were outside of the city, the, the, the dusk, the night was falling. And up on the hills, we saw all these lights coming alive. And I was, we were like, wow, what is that? And there were fires being lit. Oh, it almost makes me cry to tell this story. And the professor, he said, those are the storytellers. In the evening, they go up to the hills and people go and sit and listen to the storytellers. You know, I mean, what has happened to us, you know, that we are afraid of our stories, you know, we must, this is how we know who, even as a, as a human being, 
you know, when you look at your past, like me, I create my story. I create myself by the stories that I repeat of my past. Yes. You know, that's how I create who I am. You know, that's how I build myself. And if we don't, you know, if, if we aren't able to do this, you know, as individuals and as a society, we are just bereft of, of all, you know, we're like in a desert, in a desert. And we're being then filled by new, by these outside forces that, that have no foundation. They're just things that are being put inside of us to make us feel full, like drugs, you know, like alcohol, yeah. to make us feel full, you know, but they never last. So you always have to continue to keep doing it. And you're never satisfied. Well, I, I, I so agree with you about stories. There's a guy on um, Twitter who I will email you his, um, his, how to find him on there, who does a really interesting thing. He takes people on sketching tours of New York. Hmm. And here's why he does it. He was walking around the city and he noticed that everybody only looks at the city uh, while, while they're looking at their cell phone. <laughs> everybody's head is down. Yeah, it's horrible. They're, everybody's oh, head is down. So what he did, he's an artist and, and a good one. He takes people on sketching tours, which means they actually have to look up and look at things mm, because they're beautiful. processing it through their own eyes, right? And he's got this beautiful little video on his, on his website. I nearly wept with gratitude at the radicalism of this simple idea that we need to stop looking at the world through our technology and capture these simple, beautiful things like storytelling and sketching and actually looking at things with our eyes instead of the camera in our phone. Yeah, my um I did some research into youth now, you know, with the lockdowns and everything, and I'm a big uh defender of I just think it's evil what they're doing to our youth with the masks in the schools and all of that. It's just absolutely evil. But children now, I I talk to grand uh, parents, grandparents how they say, you know, they'll pick their teenage daughter up from school or whatever and they're afraid they're afraid to take their mask off they won't even take their mask off you know and then when they go home they just stay inside and they're constantly on these devices and they have these youtube influencers now and i checked out some of these i I wrote another piece about that um which is called amusing ourselves to death which is the title of neil postman's book one of his books i love neil postman yeah he wrote this book amusing ourselves to death and um basically where you know so a, a child does not see a face. Remember, imagine you know you don't see your teacher smile. You don't see your friends. You know you're interacting with people in this faceless way. But then you go on your device and you have your YouTube influencer, who is you're not petting your dog. They are petting a dog, and you're watching them <laughs> yeah, pet a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that's the really bizarre thing, and it will, and that's just you know it will go further and further like that. Well, I saw you, it said something interesting about masks. I saw this terrible video the other day of a woman who'd been kicked off a flight and she was holding, yeah, yeah, she was holding this kid who had asthma and the kid was crying. And I thought, well, of course the kid's crying. He can't see his mother's face. You know, he's upset and anxious and children recalibrate their nervous system by looking at how their mother is feeling. And this child, it was a boy, couldn't see that because she was also forced to wear a mask. It was just yeah. the most brutal thing. It was American Airlines, right? Let's just say it. 
<laughs> it was American Airlines, and uh, they kicked her off the flight with the kid, asthmatic kid, and there were three cops waiting. I, I don't, she wasn't arrested, but what? And nobody, it seems like nobody on the plane defended them. They're all standing around. I mean, what? I saw that hell? video too. And what's even worse is uh, you, know, you re- read the comments of people like bashing this woman <laughs> and saying, well, yeah. asthma doesn't, you know, that's no excuse. She, wear the mask with asthma and studies have shown they can come up with a study for anything that's why i say use your common sense i mean it is you know if you look at a mask it is common sense you know i mean if i can smell you know stuff through that mask if i you know i mean that is not it's not doing that much to protect and and children you know it it makes no sense with children it's just completely makes no sense other than you know i've seen pictures of children at schools lined up wearing masks and all the adults behind them maskless yeah and the children, it is now placed upon the children by 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 um, starting these, um, you know, well, uh, vaccinating young children. These children, that's the latest piece that I just wrote, talking about these children who are in these um, tests now to see if the vaccine is okay and how proud they are. And one child saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, it's like, I'm a superhero. I'm saving the world. Yes. I'm saving the world. I know, you know, I know. so that oh. this is, so um, top of everything else, our children are now responsible for saving the adults, yeah. you know, yeah. by taking this thing into their body that nobody knows what it is. It's, it's, it's really disturbing. Very disturbing. Very disturbing. Well, listen, Karen, tell me <laughs> how um, our listeners can find you on Substack. All right. So you can find me, let's see, at, um, uh, K H Mejek, that's M E Z E K dot substack. K H Mejek. Or you can look up Break Free with Karen Hunt and you can find it if you just Google that or look it up, you can find it. And you can find my writing there. Okay, and what's the name of your latest piece? My latest piece is called Offering Our Children. On Big Pharma's Altar. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to read you something that just popped up in my Twitter. Okay. It's important. It's from somebody whose handle is There's No Calm Before the Storm. And I think it is a he, but I'm not sure. It's important we go outside and talk to people and take a few days off from the propaganda machine. Mm. We need to be aware we are in psych warfare state right now. And protecting our mental health and each other has to become a priority. So, yeah, I'll I'll co-sign that. Yeah, amen, amen. Karen, what a thrill! I, I <laughs> want to meet you for a coffee one day. Oh, that would be fantastic. Maybe, who knows? Maybe we can. You're in Toronto, right? Yeah. Maybe there's a day when I can, like, you know, cross the border. <laughs> it will be an adventure, yeah, 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 <laughs> clandestinely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. We're, we are well and truly stuck. But I feel better knowing that smart people like you are, you know, your your writing is important to people. There's no doubt about it. And um, I'm sure there are days you don't want to do it. I know how I feel swimming around yeah. in this sort of toxic soup all day for, you know, to prepare a show. But yeah. it's also it, important. It's, it takes, a, it's it's um, draining, but also in yeah. the end, when I once I do it, it's like running in the mountains or something. When yeah. you reach the top of the mountain, it's like, that's a good feeling. So yeah. Well, like you, I'm long-winded too. So <laughs> people say that, but I can't help myself. So, yeah. so there you go. Anyway, thanks, Karen, for doing this. I couldn't be more grateful. Thank you so much. Really good. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
So that was the great Karen Hunt. And I hope that you will follow up and, and look her up on her Substack. She's one of the important emerging voices writing about the pandemic, the pandemic response and where we might be going. And it doesn't look good. But I did say at the beginning of the episode today that we were going to be talking about forgiveness because we're going to have to look at that at some point if we ever get to a place where we can say this is over, whatever the this is now. I'm not even sure about that. It feels such like such a complete capture. But whatever the this is, is over. Um, and we have to try to break bread again with people, especially the people who've been really cruel about the unvaccinated and the doctors peddling hyperbole and and even our own doctors, some of whom are saying things that are actually unethical medically. They're just, they violate all the things we have come to believe that doctors represent. How do we move past that? And what they teach us in recovery is that forgiveness is the answer to this stuff. I'll tell you a quick story before we go. It's pretty personal, but I'll try to omit identifying information when I got sober, I had a, a pretty serious bottom, which means the bad thing that makes us wake up and decide to go into a recovery program. Um, and it, it the, the catalyst for that ostensibly was a relationship I'd had with someone who really totally screwed me over. Let's just be honest about it. There's no other way to look at the situation. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> but But you know what? Um, they teach us to look at our own role in that. I did have a role in that. I'd been warned, but moved ahead anyway. But more than that, the only way I could get over being corrosively angry at him was to work on forgiveness, which is like asking, like, how can you ask me to forgive? He's the bad one. You know, that's what our brain is saying. And that's why the real spiritual giants, the people we should follow and should listen to, the brilliant Buddhist monks and the great Christian teachers and Jean Vanier and others, C.S. Lewis, um, have something to tell us. And that is that we only evolve spiritually when we're asked to do things that we think we just cannot do. Uh, I, I know that when a person I was working with in recovery said I had to look at doing that exercise for giving this person. I was like, what are you talking about? That He's the bad one. I'm the victim here. You know? but, but I got there. It took me years, but I got there. And I was finally free of this terrible feeling I had that was being kind of perpetuated and growing within me because of my corrosive feelings about him. And I learned how to do it. And there are steps that you can take to learn how to do it. And I think it's really valuable. And I think we're going to have to do it when this thing adjusts itself in some way and we're able to start interacting with people who have taken a completely different approach than we have around the pandemic and all of the nonsense that has attended it. Some of it, which has hurt us very, very deeply. Families are blown apart by this. We don't want to go down that road for any longer than 
you know, that is, I won't say necessary because it's never necessary than any longer than we have to. We don't want to be estranged from people we love and we don't want to be estranged from our neighbors, even though we are feeling right now that they're being pretty nasty to us and hurting us, but we'll get there, right? So when the time comes, think about the parents of Rena Verk, which is how I opened the show today. Raina Burke, as I said, was a 14-year-old who was murdered in 1997 by a bunch of teenagers. She was 14. The teenagers were about the same age, some of them maybe a bit older. Six girls and a boy, how vicious girls can be. Um, beat her, tortured her, chucked her in the water to finish her off. Uh, it's just, and, the, and the, the description of what these kids did to her is really gruesome. And Mrs. Verk had to sit in the courtroom and listen to that. Imagine that. And yet, and yet, and yet, she was able to do the spiritual work that was required through one of these programs that happens in prison, I think, where they connect victims and uh, perpetrators that allowed her to have a meeting with Warren Glowatsky, who was one of the kids, he was 15 at the time that he attacked Rena. When he was 23, he was granted unescorted temporary passes, which the Verks did not try to stop. They hugged each other, they had a meeting in a church, and it, she said it was very, very emotional. They actually had two meetings, and I think there may have been a relationship established that that went on beyond that. But imagine being able to hug your daughter's killer in that way. So Mrs. Burke said it wasn't easy. As I said, we wanted him dead for taking our child away. But then we realized eventually that he did feel genuine remorse for what he did. He started working with the restorative justice group. He apologized many times, and we had to consider that he came from a very troubled upbringing that likely contributed to what happened. He did. His childhood was a total disaster, train wreck. Mr. Verk said they needed to forgive Mr. Glowatsky so he could make the most of his young life, and also so he and his wife could release some of the anger that had built up inside them. If we didn't forgive him, he'd carry a heavy heart around with him for the rest of his life, Mr. Verk said in an interview. So even though the nightmare wasn't over for them, they're still obviously missing their daughter. She's died subsequently, by the way, Mrs. Verk has. But, but uh, they were able to get some peace for themselves, if not obviously able to end their own nightmare, but, and give this, this young guy a chance to move on and have a life. So that's, that's being a spiritual giant in my view. And I think we're going to need to, when we come to the end, or if not the end in the road, a bend in the road anyway, uh, we're going to have to start digging deep within our own selves and trying to get there. Or we, you know, the culture won't survive. And we might not either. This stuff is bad for us. Feeling angry all day is bad for us. Feeling anxiety all day, it's bad for us. So... This is something to start thinking about now.
So I would say in honor of Rena Burke and her brave parents and even Warren Glowatsky that we're going to think about forgiveness for the future. And I'm going to say stay critical and see ya. And I'm going to leave you with a piece of music that I think absolutely expresses forgiveness. It's by Max Richter and it's called On the Nature of Daylight. And it's probably the most spiritual piece of music I've heard. And I hope it helps you in maybe thinking if you can get to forgiveness at some point when this is over. Here we go. 